Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, it's great to be together again this morning. And uh, just to perhaps emphasize what Mark said, we had a tremendous time of worship in song uh, yesterday at our sing event. And just so that you know, we are planning to uh, repeat this event annually. So next year it'll be sing 2023, uh, God willing. But do turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. And we have now, of course, for months been working through the book of Exodus and now at chapter 20, looking at each of the commandments. And I am this morning continuing uh, a sermon on the second commandment that I started last week. But just felt that this uh, part of the verse uh, needed some attention, some focus in what we ought to hear from God. And so follow with me, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Just so far, reading of God's word. Lord, we bow our heads once again, acknowledging our need. Also, Lord, the context in which we stand, we, we know our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, and, and Lord, the evil one at work seeking to distract and destroy. And we pray that you would enable us, even as we continue in this time of worship, that we would resist the evil one, that we would draw near to you, our God, that your spirit would indeed be at work. Lord, not only that we absorb, as it were, uh, information in the mind, but Lord, that your spirit be at work in our hearts, enabling us to respond and enabling us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so do guide and direct. May the words, Lord, that I speak uh, be simple and clear. May it be, Lord, that which you are communicating through this particular verse, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I often like to introduce uh, sermons by uh, introducing a particular illustration. And sometimes I use my family. And, and this morning I'm going to use my uh, second son. He's uh, the biggest son, Matthew. He's not the oldest. He's the biggest son. And uh, I remember some years ago, our neighbor's palm tree. You have neighbors with palm trees on the boundary. Well, this neighbor's palm tree's branch of leaves was causing a problem on the electric fence that divided our properties. He was behind us. This electric fence was erected by him. It was an irritation to us, especially because uh, sitting on our stoop, we would constantly hear this branch causing a short 
between the different wires of the electric fence, resulting in a perpetual and annoying sparking going on. Well, I asked my son, Matt, uh, to get up on the ladder and to remove the interfering branch. I handed him a pair of shears to do the job and then watched. I'm not so sure what happened exactly, but the 2,000 volts plus threw him off the ladder and he ended up on, uh, on the ground and it left him spitting mad at me. Reminds me frequently of my irresponsible parenthood. (laughs) Well, what was going on? Why why would I want to share that with you today? What happened in that rather unfortunate episode? Now, there are two facts that I want to raise that I'm going to elaborate on in this message this morning. Number one, the harmless-looking wires were not harmless. They looked so Harmless as they stretch across one end of the property to the other. I did some research and I've now discovered that an electric fence has no less than 2,000 volts. But it can have up to 7,000 volts ready to be discharged at any given moment to anyone who unwisely touches the wire. This is the second fact that I learned from that occasion. The other fact is that Matt discovered, perhaps more so than I did, that there are painful consequences that affect anyone that does not treat an electric fence with caution. So the two issues, and I want to... uh, extract some principles that we can use as we tackle this particular part of our passage this morning. Two issues that I am thinking about uh, sending my son up on the ladder to remove this interfering branch. Number one, I should have known that there is something unavoidable about the nature of the electric fence. Something you need to know if you're going to be touching or trying to remove a branch from the fence. The second thing, I should have known that there are going to be consequences affecting anyone who does not treat that electric fence with respect. Well, let me use that incident this morning with with Matt, and I want to answer the question, the question that I left you with last week, and the question is, why is it important to worship God correctly? Why is it important to worship God correctly? Now, just a bit of review. We have already seen that in the first commandment, we are instructed to worship the correct God, one God, the only God. We are to worship Him exclusively. In the second commandment, and what we looked at last week, we're instructed to worship this one God in a correct manner. There is a way in which we are to worship God. And so the second commandment, if you look at the structure of of how it's put together, there are two imperatives. Two imperatives. The first imperative, don't make or don't have any idols. Bottom line is, you focus on God. You worship God. And, And the second imperative is, don't bow down to worship them. Those two imperatives are followed by the reason 
why we ought to worship God in a correct manner. Why it is important to worship God correctly. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And here's the reason. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now let's go back to the electric fence. You see, just like it is important to know something about the properties of an electric fence, there is something about the nature of God. I want us to think about the nature, the attributes of God. Something we, we need to know in this particular instance, in application, that is a compelling reason as you think about the way you worship, the manner you worship. You ought to be thinking about this particular aspect of the nature of God. Elsewhere, a little later in Exodus chapter 34, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. It's not often that we refer to the name of God as jealous, is a jealous God. And so, yes, it is true, and, and we celebrate, we worship, we acknowledge the reality that God is love. But not only is love an attribute of who God is. God is sovereign, and, and God is all-powerful, and, and God is everywhere present, and God is self-sufficient, and God is merciful, and God is holy, and God is glorious. But dear friends, and we've got to look at that this morning, our first point God is jealous. Have you ever thought of that? Do you think about that as you go about your life, as you go about your, your worship uh, of God? And, and we need to see, yes, we do need to clarify, God is not uh, jealous in some petty or unworthy way. But it does describe something of God's anger, affirming his opposition to idols and to images. You see, often when we people think of jealousy, we think of something negative. We're thinking of something as a powerful emotion that can do a great deal of harm, a dangerous emotion that ought to be kept under control. And so we don't like to think about God as being jealous. We're awkward about thinking about God as jealous. But you can't help read and see in the Bible God's covenant relationship with the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. We see also as it is fulfilled in his relationship with the church, the jealousy of God. I want to show you this morning is a necessary aspect of God's majestic, holy, and even, can I say, loving character. James Montgomery Boyce, theologian, put it this way, rightly understood the idea of jealousy is central to any true concept of God. But I want to take a few moments to consider jealousy from a human point of view. How do, how do we see it? The meaning, the meaning of man is jealous. Now, I grew up in the context of two sisters and a brother, so four siblings, and uh, know a lot about sibling rivalry. 
And as I was writing and preparing this message, uh, I, I, I had those words ringing in my ears. Uh, jealousy makes you nasty. Huh? Isn't that true? Did you say that? Did you hear that from your siblings? You know, when there was the competition and, and the difficulties in relationship, jealousy makes you nasty or you're green with envy. Well, psychology, I uh, thought I'd give a secular uh, definition of jealousy. Described as a complex emotion that encompasses feelings ranging from suspicion to rage to fear to humiliation. It strikes people of all ages, all genders, and typically aroused when a person perceives a threat to a valued relationship from a third party. The threat may be real or the threat may be imagined. So human jealousy, here's another definition, uh, dictionary.com, feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantage. Now both of those definitions focus on the negative, but a little bit more digging, and I discovered that even secular dictionaries describe some positive aspects to jealousy, not always negative. Let me give you one, again from dictionary.com. Being vigilant in maintaining and guarding something. Or being fiercely protective of one's rights or possessions. And so this, this more positive aspect that, that even dictionary.com reveals to us moves us a little closer to what applies to God. Explain again in dictionary, intolerance of unfaithfulness or rivalry, demanding faithfulness and exclusive worship. And so moving on then, the meaning of God is jealous. As you go from here today and you think about it, what, what is it? What, what is it then that you can then take to your mind, take to your heart and understand what it means that God is jealous? It's good to wipe out what it's not. And whatever it is, it certainly does not refer to or imply that there's anything sinful about the jealousy that God shows. God is a holy God. God is never sinfully jealous. And so we need to understand the very nature of God is such that he's not jealous because he's needy, because he is self-sufficient. He's all-sufficient. God is not greedy. There's no need for him to be greedy. No need for him to, to want what somebody else has or to have more because he owns everything in any case. He's not lazy. He's not unwilling. So, so th those, are, those are human negative uh, realities around the topic of jealousy. Wayne Grudem, he defines jealousy, the jealousy of God like this. God continually seeking to protect his own honor. Jim Packer, uh, also a Christian author, theologian, he says, it is his holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right and precious. It is a praiseworthy zeal on his part to preserve something supremely Precious. Now, there are three things I want to extract from those different statements and, and, and going back to our verse. We need to recognize, you need to recognize here this morning that God is jealous for his own honor 
and glory. Folk, God is not a human being. God is not a creature. God is in a class of his own. God is God, and we are creatures. And so we cannot, we, we, we cannot compare the difference between a human being and the responsibilities of what a human being ought to do and does do and what God does. And so, and so we need to recognize that then we people seek our honor and our glory when we want people to pat us on the back and exalt us. We are denying who we are as creatures that is not due to us. It's due to God. We're getting the things the wrong way round. You were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's not the case with God. God is infinitely glorious and worthy. He's infinitely worthy to be exalted. He is exalted He's the one who ought to receive our praise and, and glory, our attention, our devotion. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Some years ago I was doing some research and uh, came across a I guess I could call it a, a confession by John Piper, an admission. Perhaps that would be a better word. An admission of John Piper, who like many of us, he said, in spite of being raised in a Christian context, that's us, most of us anyway, where it was frequently taught, and I know this is frequently raised here at Central Baptist Church, and believed that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it, for the glory of God. That's what we believe. We repeat the verse. We say it. We, we're supposed to do it. But then he goes on, claiming, no one had ever addressed the question of who the most God-centered person in the universe actually is. Have you thought about that? He'd never been taught that God is the most God-centered person in the universe. He's God. Piper goes on, he says, I describe this as an explosive discovery, affirming that God loves his own glory more than he loves us, and that this, in fact, is the foundation of his love for us. And so as we come to this topic this morning, we need to recognize again, and I'm repeating myself, there is no one like God. God is completely self-sufficient. He's the uncreated creator who ought to be worshipped by all that he has made. So we become familiar in our South African context of so-called rights. Well, God has the right. He has the legitimate right to command our obedience, to demand our love and devotion, and therefore he is rightfully jealous. When we don't worship and serve him as he deserves, to worship anything or anyone other than the triune God of the Bible rightly provokes the Lord to jealousy. Which leads me to my second uh, point here is that God's jealousy 
is, is linked to his holiness. God, God doesn't conform to a standard outside of himself. He is the standard. You want to know what is pure, what is holy, what is right? God. God is. He, he's the standard. So, so God is in a category. He's in a class of himself, not only in terms of who he is, but specifically in terms of moral purity. Undefiled by sin, unaffected in, in, in his nature by sin. He knows what is right and good. And so when he encounters that which is a contradiction, that which is against his holiness, he reacts in wrath. The sixth verse of chapter 20 of our book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. One of those difficult verses, I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. But thirdly, God's jealousy is linked to his love. Think about marriage. Many of you are here today are married. Many want to be married. And uh, what, what is it about marriage that is helpful in this instance? Well, we know that holy, uh, righteous love uh, without jealousy doesn't make sense in a marriage relationship. Because even at a human level, if a husband and wife truly, truly love each other, they will feel jealousy when, the, when at any time that intimate love relationship is under threat. You see, in a marriage, this kind of jealousy, and again, I, I quote uh, Packer, Jim Packer, he says, it, in, in, in a marriage, this kind of jealousy, which is a necessary byproduct of love, is evoked as a way of protecting the relationship and keeping it intact. It wants to preserve that which is valuable and beautiful. And so human marriage is patterned, we know, of the relationship that existed between, existed between God and his people in the old covenant and Christ and the church in the new covenant. And so... Think this morning, just as a husband, if you're a husband, think as a husband, uh, uh, properly jealous for the love of his wife, so the Lord is jealous for the love of his covenanted people. Well, just a summary. The jealousy of God, what is it? It is his holy commitment to his honor and glory and love that manifests itself in the salvation of people. God, God actually saves people for his glory. And, and, the, and even the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. And so, folk, I would ask you to continue to think and even to explore. There is something about the nature of God regarding the, the fact that he is jealous that we ought to know. But I want to move on. Just as it is important to know that there are going to be consequences affecting anyone who does not treat an electric fence with respect, you need to know that there are consequences to the way you approach God in worship. My second main point is, therefore, God is not neutral. Your worship matters to God. It really does. The way you worship to worship the one true God in an unworthy manner 
has consequences. Verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, before you jump to conclusions, because the tendency is to want to ignore that kind of verse in the Bible, I want us to draw a basic principle. And this principle is something that we ought to learn from and ought to be thinking about in our families in the raising of children. We cannot deny... We need to affirm this morning, your attitude, my attitude, preaching to myself, your approach to worship can influence your children and even their children after them, for good or for bad. That's a principle. You must accept that. Let me try and explain or elaborate. Impacting your descendants for bad. Again, I want to affirm a truth that I understand taught in the Bible very clearly that each individual, each child, each succeeding generation is accountable in his or her own right before God. But there's a warning yet to parents. There's a warning in the way that we worship God in the way that it affects and may affect our children and their children after them. Let's take the case. Even, even if a son or daughter is mercifully saved, wonderful, aren't we glad? Pray for that. Even if that happens, and that child is not condemned uh, under judgment to hell, and, and only because of God's grace and God's intervention, is it not true that that child can often still be inflicted or severely affected by the sins of the father. Let me give you some examples. Children can end up suffering with the consequences of sexual abuse. That child can be saved, wonderfully converted, be a new creature in Christ. But some of the harm that was affected and inflicted on that child may even live on to the dying day of that child when all things will be made new. There are consequences in the way that children are treated. Alcoholism can cause uh, fetal problems, difficulties, not only physically but even mentally. Being raised in a violent context where Children are witnessing fathers beating their wives. Children are emotionally and can be emotionally affected. Godlessness. Even in the, folk, I've seen this in the church. Attitudes that parents display toward the church, you see that shifting influence onto the children. Same attitudes, same criticism. Thomas Watson, old author. I love the way these old guys wrote English. He writes, as a son catches a hereditary disease from the father. Then he gives an example. The stone or gout. So he catches misery from him. His father's sin ruins him. We do affect 
succeeding generations. And so the challenge from this passage is to consider, to receive the challenge, how are you influencing your children? How could you be influencing your children for bad? If you have chosen to worship God, to dishonor God in an unworthy manner. But let me turn to the other aspect of the verse. Your attitude and approach to worship can influence your children and their children, impacting your descendants for good. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so there is a positive motivation given us here. A great motivator against worshiping God in an unworthy manner is this promise from God to show mercy to descendants. We see this influence, an example from the scriptures. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy, and he refers to a mother and a grandmother. I am reminded of your sincere faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you also. The promise of God showing mercy to succeeding generations. And I want to affirm this morning, there are many mysteries in the Bible, there are many mysteries in theology, but God remains the author of salvation. God saves sinners. He does so, but, but we need to understand, we need to see, we need to recognize, he uses what I would want to call secondary means to accomplish his redeeming purpose. And parents can be secondary means. Preachers can be secondary means. And this promise in Exodus chapter 20 confirms the way in which God works. It's a wonderful truth. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy, showing steadfast love to thousands. I love that phrase. It comes to us, of course, in the New Testament in Ephesians 2, where we're given the condition of the unconverted person, dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of power, carrying out the desires of the body, lost, darkness, separated from the kingdom. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So let me quote Thomas Watson again so I can show the difference between these different aspects, the the influence for bad and the influence for good, that both are there. Well, Thomas Watson, and I quote him, he says, listen to this again, Old English. The vial of God's wrath drops only. But the fountain of his mercy runs. Aren't you encouraged by that? In spite of us. And so I want to remind you today, not neglecting the warning, not minimizing the warning, but let us be reminded of Lamentations 3 verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Well, a couple of words in conclusion. Creating objects or pictures as an aid to worship, I'm repeating something I said last week, is actually an admission that you think 
that you may think that God is not captivating enough in and of himself. That's wrong thinking. And so we need to see that God is adequate. God is certainly all-glorious. And therefore God is jealous for his glory. And he's not neutral about the way we worship. Forbidding objects and things to help us. And so the challenge, I believe, from this commandment, get to know God better. Don't be satisfied. Don't be satisfied with wishy-washy thoughts about God. Study the scriptures. God has revealed so much to us, for us, in the Bible, progressively in the Old Testament, until the coming of Jesus. Remember where Jesus said to Philip, and again I quote what I said last week, John chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I want to know Jesus. There is one place where symbols have been instituted for our use in worship. It is the use of the symbols of the bread and the wine when we remember Jesus at the Lord's table. Luke chapter 22, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they'd eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so, folks, those symbols point you to Jesus. Those symbols ought to repeatedly point you to Jesus, the place of the cross, the reality of his redeeming work, the substitutionary atonement, him dying in the place of sinners, Him receiving in his body the punishment for our sin. Him as a result of that attributing, crediting righteousness to unworthy, repentant sinners. Those of us who fall short of the glory of God. Look at those symbols. Meet at the Lord's table. Look to Jesus who is the author, the only author and perfecter of your faith. Now and forevermore. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on you. Convict us, Lord, of sin. Convict us of ways, Lord, that are inadequate, ways that, that, re- that detract from who you are and from your glory. Forgive us when we want to, in even subtle ways, rob you from the, the honor and the exaltation that you rightfully uh, deserve. And give to us, Lord, minds and hearts filled with the majestic nature of who you are in all of your attributes, your love and your mercy and your grace. And Lord, even as we've looked this morning, that you are a jealous God. Lead us, we pray. Make us, Lord, more and more to love Jesus and to look to you in all of life and godliness. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.